I understand I have the authority to tell you to sit. But I wonder if I have the authority to tell you to do the pokey pokey. Please sit. Sometimes an infant can bring you rest. I bet you're all thinking that that is the most crazy statement you've heard probably today. And I'm not crazy. I actually have a five-month-old. She's in the nursery right now. I can tell you I'm very tired, specifically since I was up at three with my five-month-old. And she was very awake. She wanted to play. She wanted to hoot, holler. And I had to try to get some sleep. So I begged her, please just go to sleep. But the emphasis is on sometimes. Infants in general do not bring you rest, as I just said. Um, and all three of mine have never brought me rest. They're huge screamers. Um, and I tend to always encourage new parents when I meet them to find the thing that gets your baby to sleep that involves as little effort on your part as possible because you will be stuck doing that thing to get them to sleep and to keep them asleep. So make sure it involves a rocking chair. I did know someone who once was able to get their baby to sleep by like doing this weird lunging arm curl. And I thought, wow, you must be in excellent shape by now because you have to do it to keep them asleep. So the idea that infants bring us rest, that's sort of not accurate. Um, they are a lot of work and rest is not a word associated with them typically. But sometimes as a mother who nurses, I have certain moments where my 16-pound baby pins me down to the couch or a bed, rendering me incapable of doing anything but just sitting there, silent, doing absolutely nothing. Recently, I had such an experience. My daughter had just woken from a nap, and I quickly ascended the stairs to get her with all intention of bringing her back down to the living room where I was working. And when I picked her up out of her crib, she was more upset than normal, which is saying a lot for a Larkin baby. That, that, it's like a whole realm of, I don't know, knowledge that I hope you will never experience. Um, and so I decided, against all intuition, I'll just feed her real quick, right here. So as I sat down to feed her on the bed, she fell asleep within seconds. And there I was. I couldn't move her. She doesn't transition well. She's one of those babies that if you were to put into the crib, she would, boop, eyes open, wake up, and then your time would be over. So I couldn't transition her. I didn't have my phone. My tab was currently employed uh, with her classical music that helps her to sleep. And um, I didn't have anything. My computer was downstairs. It was just me and her in this room with beautiful classical music. I was just sitting there with this infant. The only thing that was in, within toe's reach was my Bible. So I stretched out and I scooted it towards me because I figured, well, I'm sitting here, so why not? That's what you want to hear from your speaker, right? That I read the Bible because I had nothing else to do. <laughs> However, I will say that I do read while I'm preparing my children for naps. I read out loud to them. And in the early stages, since they're not really in tune to what I hear, I read out loud from the things that I need to read. So one of my sons got the full works of Calvin's Institutes read out loud to him. And she right now, we are going through the Old Testament. And so I got the Bible and I pulled it towards me and I opened it up to where we had left off, Leviticus. Because if there's anything that's going to make a baby sleep, it's Leviticus. It's got a sing-songy rhythm to it, like one ram, one male lamb, a year old, and it's like repetitive, and it sort of has this cadence. Anyway, she wasn't paying attention to the actual 
imagery that's in there, um, but I was. So Leviticus as an, is an interesting book. It is from beginning to end a book about the law. There is one story in it, and it's brief, and it becomes a platform for another law. Leviticus covers the importance of ritual purity, cleanness, uncleanness, what to do if you come in contact with something, someone unclean, and how to become clean again. It also details every nuance of each type of sacrifice to be offered, when, where, who, and how. It puts forth laws around familial and friendly relationships, who can know who, personal hygiene, and more biological matters. The law is so comprehensive that it descends to the levels of the ownership of animals and what to do if one of your animals strikes out against another's animal. About halfway through the book, I could tangibly feel the heaviness in my heart and in, and in the bones of my body, contemplating how hard it would be to keep each and every one of these laws and performing all the necessary washings and sacrifices to be clean. Considering the depths and brokenness of humanity, I found myself becoming appalled, frankly, at the amount of animal bloodshed there would have to be. Surely the priest would be sacrificing all day and night. God's holiness and the subsequent demand for human purity, being untainted by sin, no sin, was so prominent that I could feel my heart becoming overwhelmed with the notions of both. I found myself wondering if I was an Israelite, would I cloak as many of my transgressions as possible? to keep some of my livestock around? Would I really admit to all of my transgressions? I could see myself looking the other way if I noticed that my clay vessel had touched something unclean because, frankly, I just didn't want to break another one. I wondered about the crowd, those who had earlier said in Exodus, all this we will do. And I wondered if there was just one person there shaking their head, thinking, are we hearing this correctly? Who then can be saved? The more I read Leviticus, the more it became apparent to me that the law could not bring life, but only death and exhaustion, hiding and falsehood, fear and trembling. Who could honestly withstand doing all of this? Who can maintain that level of purity every second of every minute? every minute of every hour, every hour of every day, every day of every year of every year of one's life. But at that afternoon, as I sat there holding my sleeping daughter, doing nothing else but just sitting, waiting for her, desperately waiting for her to wake up, and reading Leviticus, I was pleasantly surprised by a glimmer of hope when I read chapter 12. I'm going to read to you chapter 12, and I have to remind you, it's Leviticus. And the imagery is, well, bold and fleshy. So as I read, I'm reading straight from the scripture. Leviticus 12, 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as, that, as at the time of her monthly flow. She shall be unclean, and on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her month 
monthly flow, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Sometimes an infant can bring you rest. The Lutheran Study Bible, which is one of my favorite study Bibles, writes this in a note about Leviticus 12. Childbirth made a woman ceremonially unclean. These rules would exempt the new mother from the rigors of the law and her typical role in family and community life. They also promise cleansing and restoration. In these ways, the Lord acts mercifully toward his daughters. But the note is mostly true, and it is okay to disagree with a study Bible note. I was currently experiencing a reprieve from the demands from the laundry and the dishes, editing student papers, fielding student questions. My phone wasn't with me, so I couldn't reply to emails. I couldn't work on sermons or talks, nor could I work on my dissertation. I was, at that moment, freed to physically rest. The note is only partially right, though. But what the note missed or addressed casually was the very thing that brought hope to me that cold and gray afternoon. I'm from Pittsburgh, and it's been very, very cold, very, very gray. The thing that brought me hope was this. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. A woman who had given birth was forbidden from touching anything holy, forbidden from going into the sanctuary, forbidden from being God's presence. But then Mary. After Jesus' birth, Mary was unclean. She may have been free from performing some of the obligations of the law that encompassed her daily life, but she was not free from the law. The thing that was segregating her from her community, the thing that determined that she was unclean was the law, and it was still very much active. Mary was still under the judgment of the law. There was no reprieve, truly. She was determined by the law to be unclean. Yet, and here's the striking point, that point that jumped out at me at the page on that gray, cold day. Mary had given birth and was subsequently holding and nursing Jesus for the full duration of her uncleanness. Very God of very God would dwell with his mother while she was yet unclean, impure, technically unable to be in the presence of God. Yet there she was, with God because he was with her, technically unable, he was with her physically in her presence and she in his. Reminds me of a scene from the movie The Nativity. At the very end, after Mary has given birth and the angel appears to the shepherds, there's a scene of one of the shepherds with fear and trembling. His hand is shaking, and he reaches out, and he touches the very toe of God, and he does not die. He lives. From the moment of his birth, Jesus had begun to silence the voice and demand of the law. The law was found dumb in the moment of his birth. 
Those of us here today are not plagued by the purification systems of Leviticus, but we still suffer under the weight of laws condemning verdict, unclean, or better yet, not good enough. Under the weight of the watchful eye of the law, we will, still, we will strive to self-justify, to self-validate. We will toil day in and day out, trying to keep that voice of condemnation at bay. We are desperate to stay one step ahead of failure, which is nipping at our heels. We hope against hope that no one has caught on to the fractures in our veneers from the pressure and from the demands. That, one, that no one realizes that we are just barely keeping it together, just barely eking by. Every time we miss the mark, that voice gets a little bit louder. Failure gets a little bit closer. Some of us will give up from the exhaustion. Some of us will keep going, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And like fools, we'll sing ridiculous lyrics like, whatever doesn't kill you just makes you stronger. Even if we do, by chance at the mark, we will have to keep doing it. Once isn't enough, and only always is. The demand never stops, the law is never satisfied. The voice of condemnation all too ready to whisper failure. In all of our toil, we crave rest. Rest from the tyranny of work, from the incessant demands from others, and especially from ourselves. From the insatiable pursuit of self-justification and self-validation, am I good enough? Yet, am I still good enough? Our spirits long to hear, don't worry about this. Christ climbed Golgotha and stretched out his arms on the cross and said just that. Using his last breath, Jesus cried out from the cross, It is finished. During Advent, we remember the long-awaited inaugural event of the fulfillment of the promise of God. Through Lent, we remember its completion. What began at Christmas is completed at Easter. The law's reign began to crumble the moment Christ was born. Its ability to render a verdict about who and what you are was revoked when Christ died and was raised. The voice of the law has been gagged once and for all. And two, the whispers of condemnation have been silenced. The fear of failure stilled. Come to me, all who, are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ beckons to us, just like he beckoned to Martha. Martha, Martha. To cease our striving, our toil, our running, and to rest in him. We can rest each and every one of our burdens onto him because it is not by works we are justified, but by faith in him alone. And in being justified by faith alone apart from works, we are given true, real, and everlasting rest. The burden is off our shoulders because the full weight of the law has been shouldered by Christ. We no longer have to toil to be clean and pure or strive to be good enough because he has taken our burdens and given us his yoke and it is light. He has cloaked us in his righteousness and by his presence and our union with him by faith. We are the clean, we are the righteous, apart from anything we have done and will do. What he has declared is. Those whom he has called his own are the ones he has justified and made righteous. In him, work's domination over us has been ceased and put back in its proper place under our dominion. And when striving, toil, fear, unrest rear their head, and they will, 
You come back here and you hear this message about what has been done for you by Jesus and arrest those burdens at the cross because it's at the cross where their power and voice is drowned out by Christ. Being associated with his death on the cross through our baptism, we are associated with his resurrected life. And we are given a new life, recreated, a life not haunted by the voice of condemnation of the law, or as Hosea says, not my people, unlovable, but enlivened by hearing the unshakable, concrete declaration of God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit received by faith. You are my child. You are my beloved. Sometimes an infant will bring you rest.